are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for Episode 26, The Adkins Award. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. The appellate practice section of the Florida Bar has several annual awards, including the John R. Hamilton Pro Bono Award and a relatively new Law Student Award. But the section's oldest and highest award is the James C. Adkins Award, which recognizes a lawyer's contributions to the field of appellate practice in Florida. This award will be presented at the Florida Bar's annual meeting in June, and nominations are open now. In light of award season, I wanted to talk to you about the prestigious Atkins Award. I'm being joined by Tony Musto, who chaired the appellate practice section from 1995 to 1996 and remains an active member of the section today. My conversation with Tony Musto is coming up next. So, Tony Musto, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Glad to be here, Dwayne. So, Tony, I thought you would be a great person to talk to about the Adkins Award because the award is nearly as old as the appellate practice section itself, and I know you were one of the guys who was involved from the very beginning. That's correct. I was, I guess you could say, one of the founding parents of the section. Um, I was the initial chair-elect. Steve Stark was the first chair. And uh, we put into place during those first couple of years a lot of the uh, things that are still going on within the section, and one of those was the creation of the Atkins Award. Yeah, and we sometime we might have a whole discussion about the section and the history and how it got started, but that's probably a topic for another day. But my uh, understanding is this was about 1993, right, when things got kicked off? Um. I believe we the section was probably created in late '93. That's correct, and uh, and then uh, Steve was the uh, initial chair. And the way we had it set up, we didn't know when the Board of Governors was going to approve us, and we wanted to make sure that it wasn't something where they approve us in uh, in say April or May, and then the first chair only serves for uh, a couple of months. So we had it set up that the first chair would serve for the remainder of the bar year in which the section was created, plus the year after. So Steve then served until uh, mid-94, and that's when I took over as chair and served from 94 to 95. I'm sorry, uh, 95, and then I served from 95 to 96. Okay, right, gotcha. So now, what was the genesis behind the, the Adkins Award? And I guess, you know, initially you probably didn't have a name for it, but tell me, what what was the sort of the thought process of, of having this type of award? Well, this goes into a little bit, and, and like you said, I think it would be, it'd be great to do one of these about the uh, early days of the section, and I won't go into too much detail, but we had a real good mix of people, some of whom had not been involved in bar work before, and they had a lot of fresh ideas, and they were challenging some of the approaches. And then we had a lot of other people, such as myself, that had been involved in uh, committee work and other sections and so on. And so we kind of built on what other sections did. And the idea for the Adkins Award, I suggested it based upon my dealings with the criminal law section. The criminal law section has an award called the Selig Golden Award. 
and it is given each year to someone who has had an exemplary career in the area of criminal law. And I thought that we should have a similar award to uh, to give each year. And uh, unfortunately, as we were going through the process of creating this in the middle of 1994, Justice Adkins died. And so we kind of decided that this would be a good award to name after him. And uh, so although we lost him as a member of the appellate uh, community, we uh, commemorated him through this award. So tell us uh, a little bit about who, who Justice Adkins was. Okay. Justice Adkins, uh, of course, uh, is best known for his, his term on the Florida Supreme Court, but I can tell you a little bit about his background and, and a few things about him. He uh, was born and raised in Gainesville. His father was the state attorney and was also a member of the House of Representatives. He went to law school at the University of Florida. He graduated in 1938, and his first job was as the research assistant for the Florida Supreme Court. And I specify the word the research assistant for the Florida Supreme Court, (laughs) because as you know, nowadays, each justice has... I'm not sure if it's two or three, but multiple research assistants. And in 1938, there was a research assistant for the court, and he fulfilled that role. And after spending his time in that position, he uh, uh, had some other jobs. He was an assistant attorney general for a while. He went back to Gainesville and was an assistant state attorney. He went into private practice. He authored some uh, books that were... uh, very uh, widely used by practitioners sort of guides. One was to criminal procedure. Another one was to, I believe, either property or real estate. I'm not as as familiar with that one. But they were well-known texts that people relied upon, much as uh, appellate practitioners today might rely on Padovano, or if you're talking about evidence, you might rely on Earhart. And they gained a great deal of uh, influence throughout the state. Um, He was in private practice for a lot of years. He became a judge on the Court of Record. That was before we had merged all the local courts and so on, served there from 59 to 61. He went on the circuit court in 64 and served there until 68. And in 68, he was elected to the Florida Supreme Court. That was when we still had elective Florida Supreme Court positions. And in fact, that was the last Uh, year that we had an elected Supreme Court before we shifted to an appointed Supreme Court. And it's kind of interesting that the person that he defeated in the general election was David McCain. And that name may sound very familiar to you because David McCain became Justice McCain in 1970. He was one of the uh, or he was a last-minute appointment by Claude Kirk when he was leaving office. He appointed him in December of 1970. Huh. And, of course, in the 1970s, the Florida Supreme Court um, had a very difficult time, and at the center of that was Justice McCain, and there were allegations against him of selling his votes, and the Florida legislature began impeachment proceedings against him, and he resigned. A few years later, he was disbarred, and uh, later on in his life, he uh, uh, was being pursued for some drug trafficking charges. He disappeared for a couple of years and uh, eventually passed away. 
So I would say that uh, when the people of Florida made their selection in 1968 between Justice Adkins and uh, later to become Justice McCain, they made a uh, an excellent choice. <laughs> it sounds but, like uh, they, they, they went the right way on that one, yes. <laughs> I think they did, yes. And uh, Justice Adkins served uh, on the court until 1987 when he was forced to retire due to what judges call constitutional senility. He reached the retirement age that he was required to retire under the Constitution. And he served as Chief Justice for uh, uh, 1974 to 1976. Hmm. That is definitely a, a distinguished career. Now, did he continue in private practice at all after retirement, or did he uh, enjoy his retirement? <laughs> I think for the most part, he enjoyed his retirement. He was sort of an elder statesman, and I think he weighed in on on various uh, matters and so on. Um, It's possible that he may have uh, dabbled in some cases, but I I really don't know that. Well, that does sound like a great great namesake for the award. I I know the award, the concept was something that that you had thought of because of your experience. Was there a lot of, were there other discussions about naming the award something else, or was this something that was sort of a... uh, you know, a, a consensus at the time. As I recall, it was a consensus. I, I know we uh, gathered around the idea of having an award, and uh, as we were going through this, he passed away, and I think everybody had a very high opinion of him, and it was like, um, well, how about we go in this direction? And I think it was generally agreed. I, I don't remember there being any discussion of other other names now. Is it possible that we mentioned some before he passed away? It could be, but uh, I think we pretty much uh, came together on this as the name of the award. Now, Tony, did you have any personal experiences appearing in front of him uh, when he was on the bench? Well, I did. Um, I was uh, in front of him. I'm not sure exactly how many times I've handled in my career about 75 cases on the merits in the Florida Supreme Court. And I would guess that during the time he was there, uh, maybe somewhere between 10 and 20. Not all of them were argued. But I can tell you a couple of experiences that I thought were uh, particularly interesting. One was the first case I ever argued in the Florida Supreme Court. And I was a uh, young assistant attorney general representing the state. And this was a case called Clark versus State, which had been consolidated with another case called State versus Bostick. Bostick came out of the 4th District. Clark came out of the 2nd. And it dealt with an issue that was very widespread in criminal law at the time, and that was whether a comment on a defendant's exercise of his right or her right to remain silent, which is admittedly improper, whether that constituted fundamental error or not. Did there have to be an objection? And the second district said, yes, there does have to be an objection. The fourth district said, no, there doesn't. It's a fundamental error. And interesting sidelight, the 4th District opinion, Bostick, was written by then-circuit judge sitting by designation, Alan Schwartz, who went on to sit on the 3rd District for many years with great distinction. Yes, yes. So I was arguing the case on behalf of the state, and the two cases were consolidated. And like I said, it was my first time in the Supreme Court, so I really didn't know what to expect. And I had never argued a case before seven justices before. I had argued before three in the DCAs. And I went through the argument, and I walked out having no idea if I had won or lost the case. I I could not possibly predict. But there was one thing that I was absolutely certain of when I walked out of that courthouse, and that was I had Justice Adkins on my side. If I had three more justices, (laughs) I was going to win the case. Well, I won the case, 
It was 6-1, and guess who was the dissenter? Justice Adkins. So I learned an important lesson from that, which is you can never be sure about anything from an oral argument. And uh, I learned that uh, by courtesy of Justice Adkins' dissent in that case. (laughs) The other case that I argued there that was of particular interest, I think, was a case that came up, uh, as I said, I started out with the Attorney General's office, and after four years, I became the head of the Miami office. And uh, we ended up bringing a quo warranto proceeding. Um, and I'm, you know, when you go to the CLEs and people are talking about anybody here ever done a quo warranto, I'm the guy that sticks up his hand and go, oh, yeah, okay, well, somebody actually did one. Right. And um, so we, uh, it, it was a case in which the public defender's office, uh, Bennett Brummer was the public defender. They had been appointed to represent an individual. And in addition to the representation they were appointed for, they filed a civil suit and a class action on his behalf challenging the conditions of confinement in the jail hospital wing. And so uh, we were approached by the county about filing a quo warranto, uh, which I took on and I filed and I argued. And uh, we it was, it was quite an interesting process because there had been basically no decisions on quo warranto for many, many years before that. And we argued it in the court, and ultimately the court uh, ruled in our favor and granted quo warranto, and Justice Atkins was the one who wrote that opinion. <laughs> you, you've, you've certainly had some interesting uh, experiences, and that's, that's quite a number of cases to have argued at the Florida Supreme Court. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other stories that are not uh, Justice Atkins-related that uh, we can talk about someday. But Well, we can do that. Now, they weren't all argued. They were uh, you know, dealt with on the merits. Some sure. of them were decided without argument, but yeah. Absolutely. This episode is again sponsored by CSBA but they've slightly updated their name to reflect their focus on court-related surety bonds. CSBA is now Court Surety Bond Agency, emphasizing the fact that CSBA is the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. CSBA has recently created a new website that is a great resource for appellate attorneys, includes general information on the nuts and bolts of securing an appellate bond with specific forms of collateral, an interactive map with each state's stay and appeal bond requirements, and a list of surety companies certified for use in federal court. Be sure to check it out and bookmark the site in your favorite browser. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Court Surety Bond Agency. They can be reached at courtsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. My thanks to CSBA for being a longtime sponsor of the Issues on Appeal podcast. Now, part of the chair's job is to award, uh, you know, to present the Adkins Award. So since you were the second chair, I'm assuming you must have presented the second Adkins Award that was presented. I did. The first award, of course, was presented posthumously to Justice Adkins. And um, we um, uh, presented it to his widow, who came to the uh, came to the uh, presentation at the dessert reception, and uh, and accepted it. And the uh, the first award that was presented to someone other than Justice Atkins was during my year as chair, and that went to Judge Barkdale of the Third District Court of Appeal. And the selection process that we used, and I, I know it was employed for several years thereafter, and I'm not sure if it's still employed 
but we had a five-person committee, and we set up uh, qualifications. We had to have one person from each district. We had to have at least two people who primarily dealt with criminal appeals, at least two people who dealt primarily with civil appeals, and then the fifth person could be from either of those or could be handling administrative appeals or whatever it might be. And uh, they were the ones that, uh, that uh, decided, the, uh, decided the award. And uh, we reached out to uh, as, as broad a reach as we could to get the word out there to, uh, to everyone to bring in. And we had a lot of really terrific applications. And we set up a time frame, things we really, especially as a young section trying to get attention, we wanted to get this well in advance of the convention so that we could get out a press release and uh, get publicity to bring people in to the award and, and get uh, get some attention in newspapers and things like that. So we did that. And uh, it was uh, Judge Barkdale was the, the recipient. And I had argued many cases in front of Judge Barkdale. Um, I, I don't think I was still with the Attorney General. No, I was well after I was with the Attorney General's office. But I had argued many of them uh, when I was in the AG's office and then after that in uh, as a prosecutor and as a, as a private attorney. And uh, the thing I remember most about that evening, and just to give you a little bit of background, we did a much more elaborate presentation in those days. The dessert reception was very different. It was originally designed as a kind of a place to wind down at the end of a long day. And we, it was mostly after dinner drinks like cognacs, port, Irish whiskey, um, Irish coffee, and the desserts were like a piece of cake or pie that you would get when you order it or something. And so everybody was kind of relaxed, and we did a much lengthier speech, and the recipient did a much lengthier speech, and so on. And one of the stories that I told about Judge Barkdale, in addition to all the great things about him, um, Judge Barkdale did not suffer fools easily. Uh, you needed to be prepared when you went in in front of him. And I told a story about when I had been the head of the AG's office, uh, what I would always do when we would have a new attorney is I would go with that attorney to their first few arguments just to make sure they were doing okay and talk to them. And depending on how well they did, depended on how many arguments I would attend. But in any event, I was telling a story about a uh, uh, an attorney who was going out for her first argument, and she turned out to be a very fine lawyer and so on. But she got out there, and she was representing the appellee. It was a criminal appeal. And... They called the case, and she goes up, and the attorney representing the defendant did not show up. So she walks up to the podium and says, well, I see my opponent is not here, so I'll just go ahead and start arguing. And the chief judge on that panel was Phil Hubbard. Phil Hubbard was a very soft-spoken, gentlemanly, is a soft-spoken, gentlemanly person, and he was a soft-spoken, gentlemanly judge. And he kind of interrupted her and said, ma'am, you understand when the other side's here, you're not required to argue which, as you and I know at this point, and I knew at that point, was kind of code for, you got the case one, go home. Right. Um, <laughs> Don't say well, too she, much. <laughs> right. Well, she didn't pick up on the cue. She just kind of went, oh, that's okay. I need to, I need to practice. <laughs> and Judge Barkdale, who was on the panel, looks at her and goes, we don't. So I I told that story when I was presenting the award, and Judge Barkdale told me later that he was standing there with his wife, and his wife turned to him and said, do you remember that? And he said, no, I don't remember it. And she goes, well, you know, it sounds just like you. <laughs> right, she had him pegged. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. 
Now, since you had mentioned about the dessert reception, uh, so that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So the award has always been presented as part of the dessert reception then. It is. We wanted, you know, one of the things uh, that we wanted to do was somehow kind of get on the map at the uh, at the bar convention. And, and I have to say, with all the things I've done in the uh, in the appellate section, I think the one thing that lives after me is the idea to do a dessert reception. Uh, we uh, started about, well, let's have a reception. And as you know, at 5 o'clock or so on, there's 20 receptions, and everybody kind of wanders from one to another. And a lot of times you don't even know whose reception you're in. You're just looking for who's got the uh, lamb chops or whatever it may be. And a few years before that, there had been a race for bar president. And this was the race where things really got out of control and they started putting uh, limitations on what the candidates could do. But one of the things that both candidates did is they set up dessert receptions in their suites at uh, 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And so I got the idea, let's step out of the norm. And instead of just doing a reception at the time everybody else does it, let's do a dessert reception. We'll be the only, uh, only thing happening at that point, and we'll carve out a unique spot. And it also gives us a forum to present the awards. And so... There was some discussion about that, and there were some people going, I don't know who's going to show up for a dessert reception, but eventually we decided to do it, and uh, I think it's fair to say it's been a tremendous success, and as I say, it's morphed over the years. You know, that music has been added, and it's a much livelier sort of thing today than it was, but it was good the way it was. It's good the way it is, and uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that we have created that, and I think it's really a signature event for the section. Yeah, no, I agree. And I guess I should say for anybody who's listening who isn't sure, you know, at the at the Florida Bars annual meeting, which is generally in June, uh, the dessert, the appellate practice dessert reception is on Thursday evening. It's usually like you say, nine o'clock or so as a start time. And uh, there's always, you know, food and libations and desserts and, and the presentation of the awards. So it's, it really is a great event. And the cool thing is everybody's invited and everybody who's at the bar uh, convention is, is welcome to come in and participate and, uh, and see Absolutely. us uh, give out our awards. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you said awards because uh, at, at first it was just the Atkins award, but then we added the pro bono award, which became uh, named after John Hamilton and so we give out both of those at the at the reception, and uh, a good time is had by all. Yeah, that's right. And and I I I know you won't mention, but I will mention that uh, you were a recipient of the pro bono award uh, just in 2018. So uh, congratulations and thank you for your service on that. Well, thank you. And we also now give out a law student award too, which is a fairly new thing. So we've we've got sort of a trio of awards that we give out, but the. The Adkins Award, I think, is considered to be the, you know, the... I think it's the signature award for the section. I that's right. I think that's, that is a good, that's a good way to say it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, these days, um, the criteria for the Adkins Award are, we, we have them on our, on our website, the, the appellate practice section website, and I'll, I'll, I'll just read them briefly, and I'm, I'm curious if this is... If these are your words from the beginning or if these things have changed, but what we say is that the award shall be presented to a member of the Florida Bar who has made significant contributions to the field of appellate practice in Florida. And then we say, uh, among the among factors this committee shall consider in evaluating nominations are 
uh, the extent and nature of experience in the field of appellate practice, either as a practitioner, member of the judiciary, or both, uh, service to the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar, other service to the Florida Bar in matters relating to appellate practice, other professional activities relating to the field of appellate practice, publications relating to the field of appellate practice, and any other factor that consider the committee deems appropriate, uh, and that the committee will give such weight to those factors as it deems appropriate. Is that is that language familiar to you, or is that uh, has that changed over the years? Uh, that has not changed, and I believe I probably wrote that. And I think <laughs> what to, what we did is we went and looked at the um, various awards that different sections give at sort of their signature award. Like I mentioned, the Selig Golden Award on behalf of criminal. And we put this together based on review of those, and then we may have added in some things of our own. So we kind of put together a bunch of things to try to give the committee uh, a lot of leeway, but to give them some things that we thought were significant. And obviously, for the first few, service to the appellate section was not significant because there had been no appellate section. But uh, we anticipated that would be significant in the long run. And, of course, we added the catch-all at the end, other factors that the committee deems appropriate. And let me add, too, we also put in, of course, that the committee shall give such weight to each factor as they deem appropriate. So they could find that maybe somebody was just so outstanding in one of those criteria or even something that we didn't mention that that person would deserve the award, even if they didn't uh, have anything in the others. You don't have to have uh, contributions in each of those areas. Now, as I look at the list on, on the section's website, we have a listing of most of the recipients of the Atkins Award. I think we've identified a little issue here where there's a few missing, but uh, the section is going to work on that and make sure we get that. But if people want to go look uh, on the appellate practice section website, there is a listing of previous award winners. And it, it is definitely a who's who of the appellate uh, world in Florida. And although there is a mix of judges and practitioners, the list does seem a little bit in favor of uh, judges, uh, people in the judiciary. Do you think is that something that is was part of the the flavor, part of the design of the award, or is that just um, is that just the way things have worked out over the years? Well, I think uh, the design of the award was to make it available to either practitioners or judges. We didn't want it to be sort of a, you know, judge of the year or, you know, judge so-and-so is retiring, let's uh, give him or her the award. And we wanted to have practitioners uh, available as, as part of the criteria. Uh, you mentioned that they, they there is a listing on the website, and as you pointed out to me, there are several years in the early years that are that are missing. And I know I can fill in at least three of those blanks. Uh, I just mentioned giving it to Judge Barkdell. He is not actually listed on the website. Uh, and he was the first person to receive the award other than just, uh, Justice Adkins. Judge John Shebb from the 2nd District also received the award during that time, as did Bruce Rogo, who is a uh, practitioner and, uh, and law professor. Um, so I think we do have a mix, and I think that, of course, some of the judges who got it were appellate practitioners before they became judges. Um, Peggy Quince, for instance, who got the Adkins Award the year I got the Hamilton Award, uh, was an assistant attorney general for many years before going on to the 2nd District and then going on to the Supreme Court. And uh, I've known her for many years. In fact, we went to law school together. So there's an example of someone that when people see her name there, they think judge. 
but she spent a lot of years as an appellate practitioner as well. So hopefully the criteria is flexible enough to allow the committee to choose practitioners, to choose judges, or uh, or to choose people that have done both. Yeah, uh, definitely. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this now is there is sort of a nomination season, right? When this, by the time this uh, show is published, uh, we will be approaching the uh, annual meeting. And anybody who wants to make a nomination, uh, nominations are open to everyone. They can go to the bars, uh, the Pell Practice Section's website, and there is a form that you can fill out and uh, submit. Uh, to the to the bar for consideration. All nominations are considered, and I think I hope that people will, you know, take this opportunity and be perhaps uh, inspired a bit to to make some nominations. Because honestly, having been you know a chair of the section and having been an officer and having served on the awards committee, sometimes we don't have as many nominations as we would like. Uh, you know, I think because hmm, I don't know, maybe. People are busy or they think that other people have nominations to make and that sort of thing. But certainly we, we encourage people to make nominations because the, the, the process is best served if we have a lot of people to, uh, to consider and to think about. I think that's 100% correct. And I would also note that the criteria does allow the committee to also nominate candidates on their own. So yes. if the committee is in a situation in which Maybe they don't feel that someone is uh, has been presented that they think is ready for the award. Maybe they need more years doing whatever it is, um, or perhaps some people are just not at the level that they want to uh, award it to them. They can, and I'm sure they're all going to be experienced appellate practitioners, they can come up with suggestions of their own and award it uh, accordingly. Definitely. And, and, and the years I've served on the committee, that was definitely a part of the process is Everybody in the committee sort of brings to uh, the table, you know, some of their own uh, thoughts, and we go through the applications and the nominations, and it's uh, it's definitely an interesting process, and there can be very difficult decisions to be made because the section is full of, uh, and you know, just the appellate practice uh, world is full of some so many very accomplished, very uh, impressive and very important people that uh, it can be a difficult choice to make. But you know what? That's that's great. It's great to have difficult choices. <laughs> well, that, that's a, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing when it's a difficult choice because you're deciding among a number of positives. And I think that's going to be the case, uh, you know, all the time here because, as you say, there are so many people that, uh, that could uh, very easily receive this award. And I think the key is to have a, uh, a committee that reflects different aspects of appellate practice and different geographic locations and so on. As I, you know, as I said, we had set it up as a five-member committee. It doesn't have to be a five-member, but we made sure there was a balance between criminal and civil. We made sure there was a geographic balance. And I think that as long as those efforts are made, they don't have to be maybe as strict as they were in that time, uh, there's going to be a good product coming out. There's going to be a good recipient that's going to be uh, the product of the committee's deliberations. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, and 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 that goes to the nominations too. Uh, the, the more nominations we can get from different different uh, pe- people who focus on different areas, uh, the you know the better served the award is. The one thing I would like to see the section get back to, 
uh, as I mentioned, in the early years, we made a point to do the selection process far enough in advance to get out press releases, and we got attention in newspapers in various parts of the state. The uh, friends of the recipient became aware of it and made a point of showing up at the uh, at the uh, presentation. People who were at the bar convention who were familiar with the recipient would come in, whereas they might not otherwise. And I think that we've kind of gotten to a point now where a lot of times we just don't really mention the person until the presentation. And I would like to see us go back the other way. Now, you know, there are those that might like the suspense and this and that, but um, my personal preference would be to go back to moving the time frame up a little bit so that there's time to get out an announcement and a press release. You're, you're right. For there were there were a period of time uh, prior to when I was chair, but you're right. It was it was essentially kept uh, secret uh, so that it could be revealed at the dessert reception. Um, that created all sorts of issues. Uh, making sure that the person was there, making sure that you know their family was there or their partners were there, uh, and that. And also, like you say, it it diminished the opportunity for some publicity, you know, for the award winner and for the section. And so we have made a conscious move in the last uh, few years to announce these things in advance so that we can make those arrangements and try and get some promotion. Because I do think it is important and it is interesting and, and people will cover it and people will show up, you know, to the dessert reception just to see their friend, partner, colleague, you know, get the award. So I, I definitely think we need to, you know, continue along that way. It's it's fun to have the surprise. It's fun to have the suspense, but uh, the award's probably better served by by having more uh, more publicity and more advance notice. No, that's my feeling, Jeff. Yeah. I agree. Tony, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I mean, that was uh, oh, very it's great to have the historical perspective. You know, we this this award having been first given in 1995, uh, you know, soon after Justice Adkins had passed. You know, I think that we all know this. E- even practitioners who have been in the section for 10 or 15 years. We know the award. We know the name. But we may not connect that or have any personal connection to the award. So I think having the history and understanding the namesake, uh, all that is gives a lot of flavor to the award, makes it even more meaningful. So I really appreciate you taking your time to, to give us the first person account of the history of this thing so that we can, you know, better understand uh, our own history. Well, I'm glad to be able to help put it in context for people that have come along more recently and maybe were not familiar with Justice Atkins or the basis of the award or the creation of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thanks, Tony. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thanks again to Tony Musto for being on the podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But that being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available on your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your clients' appellate bond needs. Their contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. My next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe, download, and listen. 
Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.